Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. On Wednesday, we uh, only got through uh, chapter 1 because we did uh, quite a bit of time talking about the 400 silent years between the scriptures. I'm going to forego that this morning so that we can have adequate time to deal with our six verses that we are going to deal with. I've called this message the scarlet thread, and you'll understand shortly why. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and and his brothers. And Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Solomon. And Solomon begat Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. And Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. If you want to just turn to the last verse, no, not the last verse, up to verse 17. As we study the genealogy, it divides into um, three sections. We read in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David until the captivity in Babylon, that's 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. First thing we want to point out is we um, look at Matthew chapter 1 as the Lord is not only a God of order, but of complexity with um, the timing of the genealogy being set out in three different sections. So verses 1 through 6 is our text this morning. We'll be dealing with Abraham to David. And then in verses 7 through 11, we have from David all the way up to the Babylonian captivity. Now, if we did not study the Old Testament, what I just said, you would have no idea what I'm talking about. What do you mean the Babylonian captivity? Well, you guys know all about the Babylonian captivity because we spent a lot of time in Jeremiah and the warnings, the repercussions. Daniel, the whole book of Daniel, he's there in Babylon during this whole period of time. Now, as we get into genealogy, it's actually a marker from David to the Babylonian captivity, 14 generations. And then verses, the third section, 12 through 16, again, the Babylonian captivity until 4 BC, which we believe is the birth of our Lord, we have 14 generations. Very precise, very orderly. And as we dive into it, I, you know, I think the Lord honors the fact that we um, teach the whole counsel of God. I really believe that. Because on men's prayer on Saturday morning, we just started the book of Genesis. And on Sunday morning, now we're just starting the New Testament. This morning, we're going to be studying the genealogy of Jesus. Well, yesterday in men's prayer, in chapter 5 of Genesis, we studied uh, the genealogy beginning with Adam and going all the way to Noah. And that's all of Genesis chapter 5. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all. As we consider these names, I'll point out that uh, this book, Heaven and Earth Will Pass Away, but not this book. Amen? And so these names are important. They'll become famous and are famous, and they will be throughout all eternity. And um, um, I was thinking about genealogies and and uh, my own family, um, dad, um, towards the end of his life, really got into studying the Doville genealogy. And he got one of those computer programs where you can, you know, check everything out. And he, he, 
he tracked us all the way back to uh, a city in uh, France called Two Villages. And that's what Deauville, if it's French, it's Deauville, but Two, Two Ville, or Two Villages. And he actually tracked us back to this little town that's Two Villages, or Deauville. And I thought, I wonder if anybody famous is in our family. I thought about it, and all I could come up with was no. <laughs> no nobody famous in the Deauville family. And then, uh, Dad always told us, you know, that we're, we're half French and half German. Deauville is French, of course, and Crandall, on my mom's side, well, that's as German as you can get. So, we're half French and half German, that's just the way it is until my brother gets one of these DNA tests, and he sends it in on our family. We're Irish. <laughs> We're more Irish than anything else. And it blew us all away, because uh, we, we had no idea. And um, so I couldn't think of anybody famous in the Deauville family, so I, at men's prayer I just shouted out to the guys and said, hey, anybody here? Have anybody in your family tree that's actually been known worldwide, famous? And Charlene, your husband, raised his hand. And I said, that's Scott Johnson's wife. And, and he raised his hand. I said, Scotty, what's up? What do you got? And he says, well, yeah, in our, in our family history, in our family tree, we have uh, a, a relative named Roland Abinson. Now, does anybody here know who Roland Abinson is? Well, he's the guy who discovered the South Pole. So I would, I would treat Scott and Charlie with a little bit more respect from now on, you know? They're famous, you know, they're famous people. Uh, during, during, uh, somebody texted me, I don't know who it is, just a phone number. They must have been watching live stream or something, and they gave me the name of, uh, what the heck? Second service, right? So as I, I got to thinking of uh, who are uh, as famous in our family, my great uncle's Charles Nargreen, better known as Hamburger Charlie, the inventor of the hamburger. He's got to be from Seymour, right? Yeah. So um, I don't know who this is, but they're famous, whoever this person is. I'm proud of it, too. Problem is, there's this place in Texas that they claim they have the birth of the hamburger. So there's a sign going on between Seymour and uh, I just got a nah, back from the back part. No, nah, it's Seymour. We're Wisconsin, right? We've got to stand our ground. So, uh, you know, as we think about this, this genealogy, on a serious note, we have the genealogy of our Lord and Savior in verse 1, where it simply tells us the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David. And much of our study today is going to be leading up to David. But I want to, and i got to mention that I've entitled this a scarlet thread. There are four women mentioned in these six verses. Um, they are Tamar, they are Rahab, they are Ruth, and they are Bathsheba. And um, these women, we're going to find out, some of them are going to tie in directly to uh, the message, the scarlet thread. Well, that brings up the question, what are you talking about, Dwight? What is the scarlet thread? Well, the scarlet thread is really from Genesis all the way up to and through the cross. We find um, that it's going to come up in two of the gals directly in our Bible study this morning. And um, it actually begins in the Garden of Eden um, with Adam and Eve and their sin. And uh, knowing that they had sinned, they tried to cover it up um, with fig leaves, which was not appropriate as far as the Lord was concerned. And so an innocent animal was killed, his blood was shed, and from that shedding of blood, he covered them, 
covering their shame. And we have our scarlet thread, therefore, beginning with Genesis, with the shedding of blood. But our first reference here, and just how incredibly wonderful this book is, and the deeper you go, gang, just the deeper it gets. And um, I'd like to begin this morning by looking at our first woman, Tamar, um, who was the... um, Let's go back to Genesis chapter 38, and we'll look at her story. Genesis 38. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I am going to read the first seven verses so you get a feel for this. Of course, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. His favorite was Joseph. Judah is the one that stood in the gap and saved his life when his brothers wanted to kill him. He says, nah, let's not kill him. Let's trade him off uh, to these travelers that are on their way to Egypt. That was Judah. And so what we're reading here in chapter 38 are really the sins of the line of just primarily Judah. So let's pick it up in verse 1. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and he went into her. And so she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Er. And she conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. Now, that's a girl's name, but in this case, it's a man. So we have Judah has three sons here, Onan and, and Shelah. Uh, and, and he was at Kresbeb when she bore him. Verse 6. Then Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn son, and her name was Tamar. Okay, so now we have the the first mention in the genealogy from Matthew 1. We have Tamar being mentioned. And this is where she comes into play. She was uh, the the daughter-in-law to Judah. And verse 7 says that uh, Er, her husband, Judah's firstborn, was a wicked man in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took him out, just killed him. So now she's a widow. And now it's the responsibility to keep the family name alive for Tamar because now she's a widow. Now the responsibility falls on Onan. And Judah says to him, now I want you to go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. Well, he doesn't want to do this because it's going to wreck his own inheritance. So what he does, and it's pretty graphic, so I'm just going to kind of skip around it and tell you what happened. Uh, He goes into her, into their tent. Let's just say he doesn't finish the job. And she remains not pregnant. And, um, And so the Lord gets mad at Onan and takes him out. Now, the only one left is Sheila. And Sheila's been promised to him, but he's young. And so what ends up happening is Tamar is living with Judah, but um, no relationships, as she waits in her widow's garments for Sheila to become of age so she could marry him. Well, in the process of time, we get down to verse 14. One of um, Tamar's friends says, hey, look, Judah's taken off to go check on the sheep where they're shearing the sheep. And so she takes off her widow's garments and she dresses up as a harlot and she puts a veil over herself and she knows that Judah's going to come passing by and so she puts on the clothing of a harlot Judah goes by he checks her out and he says how much and he says she says what are you going to give me he says I'll give you a lamb from from my flock and she says, I don't see any lamb here. And he says, well, I'll get you one. I'll keep my word. Not good enough. 
I want, I want some collateral. What do you got? Well, I got my signet ring here, and I, I have this staff, and, um, and I have this garment here. Will, will that do? And she said, yeah, that'll do. So he goes in, and has, Judah has no idea it's Tamar because of the veil. And uh, she conceives, and um, Judah goes on his way. He sends for one of the shepherds to bring a sheep to give to, to this um, harlot who's by the side of the road. And when the guy gets there with the lamb, nobody's there. Goes back to Judah, there's no harlot there. And um, the thing just goes by and time goes by. But all of a sudden, it became obvious to Judah that Tamar was pregnant. And she was starting to show. So we read in verse 24, when he finds this out, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out and we'll burn her. And when they brought her out, she was one step ahead of him because she came out and she said, the man who brought this pregnancy upon me, here's the staff, here's the signet ring, and here's his garment. And Judah is busted. There's no, what could he say? What he said was, you are more righteous than I am. And uh, Judah acknowledged them and said, she has been more righteous than I because I did not give her Shelah, my son. So he, she knew this was going to happen. So she's acting out of revenge. But let's be honest. She played the whore for all this to happen. And then it says now she's pregnant. And verse 27, let's pick it up there. It came to pass at the time for giving birth that the old twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand. So you can just imagine the delivery. Here comes a hand out. And the handmaiden takes a scarlet thread and ties it on the hand. And as she no sooner gets the scarlet thread tied and he pulls his hand back in the womb, And then it says, the other twin came out first. Then it happened as he drew his, verse 29, back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break enough? The breaches upon you, therefore his name is called Perez. And afterwards his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. So as we begin our study in the genealogy with Tamar, remember that it says there was Tamar and Zerah. It mentions both of them in in the genealogy of Matthew. But when you continue on in, in the birth line that leads to Jesus, Zerah isn't there, only Perez. So in the case of Perez and Zerah, the scarlet thread was to indicate who was to have the designation and the privilege of the firstborn. If you were firstborn, you got a double portion. You had, you had certain rights that exceeded your younger brothers. And to all appearances, Zerah seemed to be the one. That was the one with the uh, scarlet thread. But God had different plans, and Perez was the firstborn. And in God's province, it was through Perez that the line of the Lord Jesus Christ proceeded. That's Matthew 1, verse 3. Interesting story. What I want to point out about Tamar that that um, can't be erased from the pages of Scripture is that she played the whore. She played the prostitute. Let's go on to Rahab. And to do that, you need to turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 2. Joshua, in the next chapter, is um, going to be confronted by the Lord himself. And they're making plans on how to take the city of Jericho. 
And so what Joshua does is he basically, Rahab is one of the gals that um, actually made it into what I call the Hall of Faith. Well, we have the Hall of Fame. We have the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. We have the Football Hall of Fame. Uh, but we also have the Biblical Hall of Fame. Rahab made it into Hebrews chapter 11, and I'll read verses 30 and 31. It says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Craziest battle plan in human history. How are we going to take this city, Lord? Well, you're going to march around it for seven days. And then on the seventh day, you're going to blow the, blow the trumpet. That's the battle plan? I can imagine telling the generals how we're going to take Jericho. And we're going to walk around this place seven times, and then we're going to blow the horns, and then you're going to win. That's the plan? That's the plan. Can I tell you a side note story about Calvary Chapel? Somebody say yes so I can tell it. Okay, thank you. This used to be a disco. And most people know that. Maybe some of your new timers don't. It used to be called Studio 9000. And um, it was a dry disco. I mean, when we walked into this place, it had uh, shag carpet on the wall, red and black. Uh, it had a plexiglass floor with lights that came up. And yes, we did have the globe that shone, the disco globe. And um, uh, some of the early worship music was like this, you know. And uh, just kidding about that part of it. But I saw the potential. And, um, and we ended up um, buying it. Complete miracle. That's a whole other story within itself. But the problem was, it was a nuisance. It was always making the headlines. The neighbors, they would, they would come, and because it was a dry disco, the kids would hide their boozes different places around the building. Yeah, some of you were here during that time, I know. And, um, and what happened was, there was this um, missionary that lives right by Tulula Park, right before you get to the park. And they were missionaries in India till 47, till the Brits kicked them out. And so they came back here, and they're prayer warriors. And I would go and visit them because I had a heart for India too, and they were missionaries in India. And she told me this story. She said her and her husband would come to this building often. And because of this scripture here in taking Jericho, they would walk around Studio 9000 and claim it that the Lord would use it for, I get choked up telling it, for his glory. And once you know that uh, the day that we bought this place, it, we, had, we had TV stations here, every newspaper in town, there was more than one at the time, doing interviews on TV because uh, it went from disco to a church. And uh, the, that just wasn't, the norm. But the story behind the story was there were people praying that the Lord would use Studio 9000 for his glory, and he's been doing that for almost 40 years from, from the time that it was Studio 9000. I got to know. Anybody here old enough that was at Studio 9000? I see a hand there. I see one here. Okay, you guys are busted. <laughs> we had uh, somebody walk in the building one time that was... Um, actually had a vision and used to come to Studio 9000. This is in none of my notes, just so you know. And he walked in the building and the building was the way that he saw it in his vision. But he remembered only Studio 9000. But he had a vision and when he walked through the door, he stopped dead in his tracks. And you'd have to have him tell the story. More believable when you see the look on his face because he, he came in and he stopped. And um, the only other thing about this place that's interesting is that before it was Studio 9000, it was a Suzuki shop, and they sold motorcycles here. And the pulpit, before we put the addition on, used to be right there. And so the pulpit was there. Well, Jerry Crash is doing the sound. And he worked in this building right where the pulpit was on motorcycles, and now all these years later, oh, he's about 20 or 30 feet 
farther back, but he's still part of the structure of the building. <laughs> he actually put together, worked on Suzuki's, and he was a motorcycle uh, mechanic. That was Jerry's thing. He was into the dirt bikes. And, and um, so this got a lot of great stories, I could tell you. What were we talking about in our Bible studies? <laughs> oh, man. I, I want to talk about Mary's birthday party. We had it was, was so f- we had such fun. We partied for two hours, and somebody gave her a cub glass, and it said sixty on it. And it says, "I'm sixty now," and the rest of it says, "And what was I going to say?" <laughs> so we're, she's using that card now whenever she can't remember something. Rahab is famous, and she made it into the Hall of Faith. And Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. The game plan. We got sidetracked on marching around the city, remember? Okay, well, before that happens, Joshua sends in two spies. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Joshua, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out, two men from the Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went, and they came to the house of a harlot named Rahab, and they lodged there. Now as they're lodging there, the word got out to the king, Hey, there's spies at the harlot's house, and she's hiding them. So the king sends some men up, and they said, Bring them out, we know they're in here. She says, yeah, they, they were in here. She's lying, because she took the two guys and hit them in the straw up in the attic. He says, you just missed them. You know, as they were closing the gates, they, they just made it out in time. If you hurry up, you could probably still catch them. They buy the story, and they're gone looking for the two spies. In the meantime, Rahab brings these two guys down, and she opens her heart, and she just said, Jericho is undone. There's not a man in his place that has any courage left in him. They heard about the God of your God that you serve, how he divided the waters. We read that uh, the the most powerful kings in verse 10 uh, were the kings of the Ammonites, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed We've heard how you dried up the waters of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt. And the people's heart here has melted. We don't have any courage. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And she knew it. And she said, we're undone and we're scared to death of you guys. And she says, we know that you're going to take the city. So... I just saved your lives by hiding you. I want you to return the favor. That when you come, that because I saved your life, then you save our life. And so we read, the men answered in verse 14, our lives for yours, if none of you tell this business of ours. In other words, you can't tell anybody we were here. And it will be when the Lord has given us the land that we'll deal kindly with and truly with you. And then she let them down by a rope through the window of her house that was on the wall. She she dealt, dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, get to the mountains, lest the pursuers meet you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And then afterwards, go your way. And then the men said to her, we will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless... When we come into the land, you bind this line of a scarlet cord in the window from which you let us down. And unless you bring your father and your mother, your brothers, and all of your household into this house, so it will be that whoever goes outside of your house or into the street, then his blood is on his own head. But if we come and your family is there and we see the scarlet cord so that we know which house to protect, we'll keep our word. You saved our life, we'll save yours. But the scarlet cords, we've got to mark the spot. 
And if they're, they're not in the house, then they're on their own. So we have in our genealogy another person who has a reputation. Tamar was a prostitute. Now we're talking about Rahab. She's a harlot. Well, what happens is when Jericho falls, she gets married to one of the soldiers. How do I know? Because Rahab married a Jewish man named Solomon. We just read it in Matthew. And they had a child named Boaz, and they moved to Bethlehem. And Boaz, you know, is the one who marries Ruth. So let's turn to the book of Ruth and watch the genealogy continue to unfold. Now, for sake of time, unfortunately, I'm going to have to abbreviate the story and um, bring us up to our main verses. But basically, Rahab marries Solomon, and they move to Bethlehem, and um, uh, they have land there, and they have a son named Boaz. Well, Boaz is the richest guy in town. He's, he's the one with all the money and all the land. And, and the book begins with Naomi and her husband and Elimelech. And there's a famine, and they lose everything. They had to sell their house with their house with their property. And um, in the law, you could do that uh, if you were poor. But you also had first rights to buy it back. But they had nothing. And so they go to Moab with their two sons. Not only does Naomi's husband die, but her two sons die. They had taken Moabite's wives, and one of them was Ruth. And you know the story. I've heard Naomi said that the Lord has blessed Bethlehem. There's food again. I'm going home. And, um, you know, they argue Ruth wants to go along. Naomi says, you can't. Ruth says, I'm going. No, you can't. Yes, I am. And Ruth wins the argument. And she says, let nothing but death ever separate us. And so here comes Naomi and Ruth back into town, and everybody's happy. Naomi's back. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because we've come back with nothing. And um, they were poor. And the welfare program in those days, because they had nothing, was Ruth was to go out and work in the fields as a gleaner. Now, in the law of Moses, they had a provision, a welfare program, that if you're harvesting, and they returned during the height of barley season, wheat season, that you couldn't harvest all your crop. You had to leave the edges of the field ungathered so that the poor people or people that were traveling by could come and glean. And she ended up gleaning in the field of Boaz. And um, Boaz comes to work in the morning and he greets everybody, says, praise the Lord. Wouldn't you love your boss to greet you that way in the morning? (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) And um, all of a sudden he, he says, Who's the new girl? And I'm reading between the lines, but I think it's love at first sight. But he's an older guy, and she's a younger gal, and he wants to know who she is. And we read, uh, he, has, he, he brings her over and talks to her, and he says, uh, who are you? And, and he says, oh, yeah, I've heard about you. I'd like you to go to chapter 3, verse 11. Um, He says, I've heard about you, and the people know that you're a virtuous woman and how you've taken care of Naomi. Well, when Naomi, um, when Ruth comes home, Boaz talks to all the men. He says, guys, not one hand. Nobody lays a finger on Ruth. You leave her alone. And more than that, I want you to let her glean with you. And more than that, I want you to take some of the stuff that you've been gleaning and take a couple handfuls and throw it out of ground for her to find on, on purpose. 
There's actually commentaries that are called handfuls on purpose, and that's where it comes from, the book of Ruth. And so at the end of the day, here's Ruth, and she comes home, and she's got all this stash that uh, no gleaner would ever possibly make in one day. And Naomi said, where in the world have you been gleaning? Oh, in the field of Boaz. Boaz, and she lights up like a light bulb, Boaz is, is a near kinsman. Very near. And all of a sudden, you know, the wheels start to spin. And um, she plays matchmaker. I said Yentl's in the first service, and I got called on it because it's Yentl. And I'm probably saying it wrong from, you know, matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. Okay? That's what Naomi is doing. And she wants to set up Boaz and Ruth. And she says... Okay, this is what you do. Don't go to anybody else's field. You stay there till the end of barley season. And then they're going to have a big party. And then the guys are going to, after they're done partying, they're going to go asleep by their stash to protect it all night. Now, what I want you to do, Ruth, I want you to put on your prettiest garment, fix your hair up real pretty, put on some nice perfume, And you sneak into where Boaz is, make sure he's sleeping, uncover his feet, and just sort of snuggle up to him. Now, in Haiti, we went through part of the story of Ruth, and I was telling this portion of the story. Whenever you're speaking through an interpreter, you want to make sure that they're connecting with you. And so I'm trying to explain, you know, how do I explain snuggling up? (laughs) So I grabbed Bastia and I put my head on his shoulder and I cuddled up to him. Well, they just, they just cracked up. I don't think, I don't think they heard anything else the entire day. Pastor Dwight put his head on Pastor Bastia's shoulder and they got a big kick out of it. At about midnight, Boaz wakes up and there's this girl sleeping at his feet. And he says, who's down there? And he says, she says, it's Ruth. Will you perform your duty as a kinsman redeemer? Because he was a close relative and he had the means. He's the richest man in town. He had the means to buy back all that belonged to Elimelech and Naomi. And that transaction would mean the marrying of Ruth. So basically, Ruth is proposing to Boaz. And she says, will you perform your duty as a kinsman redeemer. We have nothing. And unless you redeem us, we remain as we are. And, you know, I th- I'm thinking he's in love with this girl anyway. And he says, you've shown me more kindness now. You didn't go after the young guys, and you're proposing to me? Deal. <laughs> and um, Ruth goes home and says, He's going to fulfill the right of Goel. In Hebrew, it's Goel, or kinsman redeemer. And she says, Ruth, don't worry about a thing. This man's not going to sleep until this business is taken care of. We have one problem. There's one guy closer in relationship than Boaz. Now, the way they did title deed transactions in those days is you met with the elders of the city at the gate of the city. And so here's Boaz. He's up early real early. And he's looking for the guy to come by who's closer in relationship to Naomi than he is. And he finds him. The guy's name is Hosuchawan. I don't know what his name is. I think it's a great name. Hosuchawan. Come on over here. And uh, he gathers all the elders of the city. He says, you know that Elimelech and Naomi left. Elimelech died. They had to sell everything. And you know that we're family. And we have first rights. But I don't have first rights. You have first rights. So you can buy back the land that belonged to Naomi and Limelech. And he says, I like their land. I'm going to buy it. Oh, Boaz says, one other thing. In the day that you buy the land back, you also have to take Ruth as your wife. And he goes, what? My wife will kill me if I do that. Either that or Ruth was what? A Gentile. Jews were not to intermarry with 
them. Rahab married a Jew. That's not kosher, but it happened. Boaz is going to marry a Gentile. He said, okay, if you're not going to claim it, then all the elders are gathered together. Let it be known this day in front of the elders of Bethlehem that I purchase everything that belonged to Elimelech. And I restore the family name, and I'm going to marry Ruth. That brings us to chapter 4. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a kinsman, and your kinsman redeemer. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, of your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons that has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And also the neighbor woman uh, gave him a name saying, there's a son born to Naomi and he called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez begot Hezron. Remember, Zerah was in there too, they're twins, but you don't find his name here. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot uh, Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Solomon. Solomon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obeb, and Obeb begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And now we have this, uh, I think this, this beautiful picture unfolding of a very wealthy man buying this field. Not that he needed another field, but he sure was interested with, with what went along with the agreement, namely one Ruth. Okay, hold on to that thought. We still have one more to go through. And in Matthew, um, I'll, I'll just read it and then have you turn to Second Samuel chapter 11. Matthew chapter 6, 1 verse 6 tells us that David, the king, begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, we all know her name was Bathsheba but the Lord does not dignify her name because David committed adultery with Bathsheba and to make matters worse, to cover his tract, he killed Uriah the Hittite, who when you study the scriptures closely happened to be one of David's mighty men. And if you were one of David's mighty men, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking Navy SEALs here or the upper echelon in the military ranks the cream of the crop when it comes to special ops and all that. These were David's mighty men, and Uriah was one of them. So if you're in Second um, Samuel, uh, picking it up in chapter 11, we read in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle, when David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, that they destroyed with him, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this was not his custom. David always went out with the men of war. Not this year. And he had time on his hands. There's a whole Bible study right here, gang, of having too much time on your hands, because time on your hands can get you in trouble because you got time on your hands. And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, 
And she came to him, and she laid with him, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So now it's months later, and she sends a message to David and says, David, I'm pregnant, and you're the father. What am I going to do? Well, he's fast at his feet, and he says, call for Uriah to come. And uh, he makes small talk with Uriah, right? Uriah, good to see you. Tell me, how's the battle going? So on and so forth. And it's all a means to get him to come home. Anyway, good to see you. Why don't you just go home and take a night off? Fully expecting him to, you know, absence makes the heart fonder, it said. And he was hoping that they'd go home and have a romantic evening with his wife. Except Uriah was a man of integrity. And he was one of David's mighty men. And he wouldn't sleep with his wife. He wouldn't enjoy the pleasure. And uh, he sees David the next day, and he's, he goes, how did it go? He says, well, you know, I slept on the front porch. What do you mean you slept on the front porch? I said, well, how can I go and enjoy my wife when the guys are out in the field sleeping on the ground? I'm not going to do that. That's not an honorable thing to do. So here, David, cutting the story short, um, you know, writes a suicide letter for for Uriah, and he puts him in the front line where he's sure he would be killed. So David, my hero, commits adultery with Bathsheba. To cover his tracks, he commits murder. And this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The consequences for his sin was the Lord took the child. But if you turn to Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, we read that the first son was taken. But in verse 24, it says, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her. So she bore a son, and she called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him. And so we, we have... Here, the Lord, through Solomon, continuing the, the genealogy that is going to lead up. Okay, question, as we begin to wind this up. What have we learned in the first six verses of the New Testament about the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Well, we've learned that three out of four of the women were either a harlot, a prostitute, or an adulterer. And that Ruth is the only woman in the Bible who is called virtuous. Um, Proverbs 31 talks about who can find a virtuous woman. But if you search the scriptures carefully, I could be wrong, but Ruth is the only one I'm aware of that's called virtuous. How can she be called uh, virtuous? There's really none that are good or virtuous. Isn't that true? And yet he calls her virtuous, and that's how she's going to go through all eternity, that verse is going to be there in the book of Ruth. Oh, I know all about you. How you take care of your virtuous woman. Take care of Naomi like, like what you do. Well, here's where you and I come into the story. You see, we're part of the genealogy. Do you know that your DNA was on Noah's Ark? Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That part of your DNA pool, you can trace it back to there. And so now you and I are part of this story. Well, how are we a part of this story? Well, you have been redeemed. And my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, actually in the story of Ruth, you're Ruth. You're the virtuous woman. Even though we sometimes think of ourselves more in the contents of Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba. Because we're all guilty of these sexual sins, whether you committed them openly or just in your heart. The Lord says, even if you've just done it in your heart, you're guilty. Anybody want to raise their hand and say, I'm righteous from these things and I'm virtuous? No. But you want, you want to know what the truth of the matter is? Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin 
Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law. I haven't. I haven't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Well, what's the law? Well, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, bear false witness, and 613 more. And he did every one of them perfectly. And he never sinned once. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That's great news. I haven't asked for an amen yet this morning. That's great news. Well, here's better news. He not only took away our sins, but he gave us his righteousness. The great exchange. Now, I will take that deal any day of the week. And I say, well, I don't feel like a Ruth. Well, forget how you feel. Feelings are one of the worst things that can happen to you. Or your intellect. People who think they're smarter than the Bible. You know, whenever your mind or your emotions are in conflict with this book, know that you're wrong and the book is right. Another good place for an amen. The fear of the Lord is just the beginning of knowledge. And so we have to deal with the reality that we, and this is when the Bible says you'll know the truth, it'll set you free. I know me. My brain, especially B.C., and for those of you who don't know Christianese, that's before Christ. <laughs> uh, we're more in the category of Tamar, Bathsheba, and Rahab. And um, the great thing about being God is that he can take your sins and remember them no more. The bad thing about being human is you can have all your sins forgiven, but unfortunately the memory still sticks and the enemy likes to bring it up every once in a while. You call yourself a Christian. Don't you remember when? And then unless you're quick on your feet and say, yeah. But First John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. And you'll walk in that righteousness. So whether you can, um, you can't emotionally accept this, We walk by faith, and the faith that we have comes as we study this book. And my book tells me that me and you are Ruth. Now, we're going to close this morning this uh, with um, me reading just a little bit about the scarlet thread. Theologians and Bible students sometimes refer to the scarlet thread running through the Bible. By this, they mean that the Bible, the theme is Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for the redemption of mankind. The blood of Christ runs throughout the entire Bible, symbolically. It is seen in the animal killed in Eden to provide garments for Adam and Eve, the ram that took Isaac's place on the altar of Moriah, the Passover lamb, the institution of the sacrificial system, the scarlet rope of Rahab, and the thousands of years of sacrifices performed at the temple, the scarlet thread runs all the way up to John the Baptist declaring, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And at the foot of the cross when Jesus finally said, paid in full, or it is finished. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, here is the scarlet cord. That begins in Genesis. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Gang, there's no other way under heaven where you're going to make it. You have friends that don't believe that. How are you going to get to heaven? Well, I'm a pretty good guy. God doesn't judge on a curve. Well, I'm not as bad as that guy or the guy that's doing all the shooting and killing people. I'd never do anything like that. No, all have sinned, not some. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the good news of the gospel that we have is that we've been washed whiter than snow, and you're a chaste virgin who is now called the bride of Christ. We're simply waiting for the wedding day. We're already betrothed, and we're waiting for the Lord to come and take us to the wedding feast. We're going to close with Matthew chapter 13, which is, a chapter on just parables. And we got to be careful 
when it comes to knowledge, because knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And we can do an in-depth study of the genealogies and dig up all kinds of treasures and go, wow, far out. Oh, I said far out. I just gave away my age. And we can leave and, and be, you know, pretty proud about what we know. And that can be a danger. Because Paul said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. And if our motive is anything other than that we love Jesus because of what he's done for us. Is that, if that's not your motive for being a Christian and you're in ministry or wanting to be in ministry, then you better get out of ministry. Because the Lord said to the book in Revelation to Ephesus, he says, you got it all going. Find oiled machine in your church. And he says, problem is you left your first love. He says, unless you get back and do that, I'm out of here. What? Yeah, he gave him an ultimatum. He says, either you get back to the first love or I'm leaving this church. So I'm ending the study this morning and I want it to be more of a love story as we begin the New Testament of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And when we look at uh, verse 44, the parable of the hidden treasure, it says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which when a man found and hid for joy over it goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Half the commentaries that teach the meaning of this particular parable will tell you this. The one who sells everything is the, you, the Christian. You give it all up so you can have the treasure, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we sing the song, I surrender all. I surrender all. Oh, no, I don't. And neither do you. No, we don't. Not if we're honest. But there is one who surrendered all, isn't there? The one who left it all, who took on human flesh. The word became flesh and walked among us, and we beheld his glory. Oh, he gave it all. Why? To buy a field? If Jesus is the one that left all to buy the field for joy, it says, he gives everything up so he can buy a field. Let's go back to the story of Boaz. Boaz is the richest man in town. Think he needs another field? Nope, doesn't need another field. But he sure wanted what went with the deal. He wanted the treasure that went in with the field which was namely Ruth. I believe it was love at first sight. And when she proposed to him, it couldn't have been the best thing that ever happened. The Lord wants you to know that he's given it all for you. That's how much he loves you. And this is a love story. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a love story. And if you take that element out of it, all you got is religion. And uh, I, when people say, oh, you must be very religious. And I go, I hate religion. And they go, what? You're a pastor and you hate religion? And I say, yep. And that usually sets them back because they can't imagine. But I love Jesus. And it makes them think. And, um, you know, Stalin was right. Um, Religion is the opiate of the people. And it causes people to be, instead of liberated, entrapped. And many religions have people trapped with legalism. But the Lord says, I'm going to set you free. When you realize that you're out of the equation, that you're nothing more than a Rahab, um, a Bathsheba, or a Tamar in actuality, but there's also a Ruth in there that was redeemed, and I've been redeemed, and you've been redeemed. And because you've been redeemed, you're Ruth. And the way that our Lord and Savior, he's not our Lord and Savior. He's our groom. And we're simply waiting for the wedding day. So as we kick off the New Testament, and we look at the genealogy, there's a lot in here. But let's not miss the main thing, and let's keep the main thing, the main thing, the new covenant. What new covenant? Oh, a new commandment. 
Well, what's that? Oh, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your might, with all of your soul. And you do that, and it, the rest of it's all going to come right into order. And then he says, oh, yeah, love Tom, too. Tom's, I know, Kelly, he's a little hard to love, but we love, we love him anyway. So I got to love Tom like I love myself. And I love myself a lot, but my Bible tells me I got to love him more. So that's not me. But if the Lord is in me, then it's actually possible to do that. And you see, it says in Romans that love fulfills the law. What do you mean, Dwight? Love fulfills the law. What's the law? Thou shalt not steal. You see, if I, I know that he's praying about this new bike right now. <laughs> I know the guys at men's prayer. I hope I didn't let the cat out of the bag on that one, Tom. <laughs> and uh, let's say I know where he, where he keeps this bike. You see, if I love him, I'm not going to break into his garage and steal his new bike. Why? Because I love him. But if I don't love him, and I know he's looking at this new three-wheeler, then I just might be tempted. How does love fulfill the law? I love him, so I'm not going to steal from him. Love fulfills the law. There's a whole Bible study right there. I think a pretty good place to end this study. Amen? I'll stand up and pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And the wonder of it all, we stand humbled as we just look at six verses that speak of your genealogy and the the nuggets that are there, the scarlet thread that runs through, that speaks about you loving us so much that you took away our sins and you gave us your righteousness. And you look at us and call us virtuous. And just as Boaz desired Ruth, to marry her and love her so you desire us. And Lord, help us think of you in that way, that your thoughts towards us are for good and not for evil. And um, help us approach you, not with fear, but with gratitude and with love for all that you've done for us. We're so grateful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.